It's been three years since my husband and I went to Australia, the, the state of Victoria to be precise. Not just to spend time in Australia's own second city, Melbourne, but to venture out into the rolling hills, the, the green pastures, uh, to see the Twelve Apostles, these magnificent stone formations in the ocean, small towns, wildlife sanctuaries, so much more. And of course, we, we were there to see family too, which uh, that was just as much of a highlight. While I could talk about Australia all day, the good, the glorious, uh, for instance, I left Australia convinced cricket is the finest sport ever created. Um, I also only ever want to have my iced coffee the Australian way, hot coffee with a couple of scoops of vanilla ice cream. Uh, it saves on water waste, and there it is, everything you need, milk, sugar, and ice. Um, and should I retire tomorrow and my husband consent, I could imagine living out my days in the small town of Timboon or Corrymungal. Koalas in the backyard, long summer days, mild winter nights, uh, I could go on. There were two things, however, that left uh, an indelible impression. I ended up visiting both Unitarian churches in Melbourne, preaching at one. I also found myself at a Catholic Mass in an Anglican Vespers. You'd think I was a clergyman or something, dragging my spouse to all of these services. Uh, but a pro tip, on hot spring or summer days in Australia, the churches are the coolest places to be. But also, I experienced this in every tour, every visit, every official presentation. Uh, it was on signs and posters. It was everywhere. Australians began with something that I've seen slowly creeping into American consciousness. Land acknowledgement. Australians begin nearly every meeting or event with a few simple words affirming the original stewards, the first peoples, the indigenous tribes that resided on the land and continue to do so. It's phrased in a way that means, uh, that names uh, what happened without wallowing in it. it. This is colonized land, the statements proclaim, and we, meaning Australians, acknowledge that as a small entry into a hopefully meaningful and larger reparation yet to come. In Melbourne, I heard of the Ware and Jerry people often. They were named, represented, their stories were told. And you may have noticed this practice popping up here and there in the United States. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade had it. Several groups, mostly progressive, are adopting it. We've used it here several times, and you've all been called to dig deep into the indigenous history of the land our church is on. It gives me hope seeing this practice come here. In Australia, it is do not done with pomp. Uh, it's not done with virtue signaling. In other words, look at how enlightened we are. And it's not really done with guilt. The virtue is in what is yet to come with that practice. And uh, what good is guilt or shame if right relationship is not the eventual goal? I really do hope this practice becomes commonplace in our culture. And maybe that can start here in part. The second thing that left an impression in Victoria was the emerging indigenous art scene. Aboriginal peoples, in this case, the Ware and Jerry people, were slowly entering into artist collaboratives. A lot of what Westerners look at and call art was, for the Ware and Jerry, just a practice, not necessarily art. The baskets and clothing, body paint, uh, jewelry, all had practical purposes. Same with their drawings. In many instances of original Aboriginal drawings and paintings, the symbols often don't make much sense to the casual observer, who isn't wearing Jerry. What is this over here, someone might ask, and why is a bird or lizard over here, and what is this circle or line or X? But when you think like one of the wearing Jerry, it all locks into place. What we call art, the wearing Jerry call 
maps. The drawings and paintings were overhead views of the landscape, showing landmarks, hunting grounds, locations of tribes, and other useful information. Overhead views with no special surveying equipment, no airplanes, certainly. All they had was an intimate connection to the land. A connection that was so deep, their way of representing the world was not from their perspective, but from above, looking down on everything, each having its place and purpose, nothing elevated above anything else, just the world and life, equal and connected. I, I feel there's some wisdom there for us today. The Wurundjeri people have stories to tell and lessons to teach, and that is part of Australia's move to acknowledge their history as a colonizing nation. In a global society, there isn't just Western or Eastern and then the rest. There's an intricate weaving together of countless threads, each bringing wisdom, customs, practices, culture, religion, beliefs, perspectives. There is no longer just the Aborigines of Australia, but instead 500 nations of tribes on that continent. There's no longer just European, but clans and lineages and peoples. Gone is this idea that I'm just white, but instead the product of Angles, Saxons, and Normans, tribes of people that emerged from Iran, the Celts emerging from India generations ago, and, and so on. An ever-shifting tapestry that isn't about a single identity, but rather an overhead view of life unfolding. Always changing, always shifting, no refuge in certainty. It's one thing to look to Australia for this, and we can certainly learn uh, something from their practices. But we need not look far here in the United States for such wisdom as well. Gone are the overhead paintings, but still the intimate connection with life remains. All told in different ways among the 562 Native American tribes in the United States, but tethered together by that same intimacy. In the reading we heard earlier, the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address, there it is. And I should editorialize just a bit here. The address has nothing to do with the holiday we just celebrated, but it's hard not to reflect on the two. They do contrast and relate nicely. But anyway, there it is, that connection in that address, that abundance. Robin Wall Kimmerer, Kimmerer um, a member of the Potawatomi Nation, looks to that address and says, how can you not feel wealthy? She continues that such a statement is a countercultural act today. We live in a consumerist society, and to be content, to not always take more than one needs, to avoid creating unmeant desires, to share wealth, goes against the grain. It sweeps us away from seeing the world through only our eyes to seeing it from above. All of the connections and intricacies of the interconnected web we speak of often. Kimmerer moves away from just commenting on such an ethic, which she sees and feels in her own Potawatomi nation. Uh, she lives it. And in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she speaks at length about her journeys into the forest, looking for leeks and other plants. She carries her basket, traversing barren fields that can only grow corn into the wild youth of the forest. And she kneels down uh, when she finds leeks and with a rustic trowel, she asks permission first. May I harvest, she asks the leeks. And she says they always answer. Sometimes she needs to be patient, waiting for abundance. And other times she must exercise restraint, 
only taking what she needs so that more abundance may continue. And always, always giving thanks for enough. She lives by a code. It's unwritten, passed down through stories and practices. But lucky for us, she wrote down what she feels strikes at the heart of it. And she calls it the honorable harvest. It's a way of life present in most, if not all, Native American tribes, though it's usually expressed in small acts that are unique to each different culture. But for our sake, for, for this society, she tried to write it down. Kimmerer summarizes the main points, uh, but instead of hearing them from me, I, I think you should hear them from her. If I could choose just a single element of the traditional teachings that we're called to pick up, it would be the teachings of the Honorable Harvest, which were taught us by the plants, who give us everything that we need. It's a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the living world, a very sophisticated ethical protocol. One of the first steps of the Honorable Harvest is to understand that the lives that we are taking are the lives of generous beings, of sovereign beings. And in order to accept their gift, we owe them at least our attention. To care for them, we must know what they need. And at the very minimum, we should know their names. And yet, the average American can name over a hundred corporate logos and ten plants. Is it a surprise that we have accepted a political system that grants personhood to corporations and no status at all for wild rice and redwoods? The protocols for the Honorable Harvest are not really written down, but if they were, it would look something like this. When you get to the woods, you don't just start grabbing everything in sight. We're taught never to take the first plant that you see, and that means you'll never take the last. This is a prescription with inherent conservation value. And then if we encounter another plant, we ask permission. I've always been taught to address that plant, to introduce myself and tell it what it is that I have come for. If you're going to take a life, you have to be personally accountable for it. I know there are places where if you talk to a plant, they think you are crazy, but in our way, it's just good manners. If you're going to ask, you have to listen for the answer. You can listen in different ways, pragmatically, intuitively. Look around, see whether those plants have enough to share. And if the answer is no, you go home. For we remember that they don't belong to us. And taking without permission is also known as stealing. And the Honorable Harvest counsels that we also take in such a way that does the least harm and in a way that benefits the growth of the plant. Use everything that you take it's disrespectful of the life that's given to waste it. The next tenet of the Honorable Harvest is to share it with others, human and non. The earth has shared generously with us, so we have to model that behavior in return. And a culture of sharing we know is a culture of resilience. Of course, I, I offer uh, gratitude for Bioneers for that video. And uh, Kimmerer broadly summarized the points but that, the heart of it is there. When nature is something we are not here to conquer, when we go against the grain of consumerism and lean into relationship with all things, when we form an intimate connection with life, our life and the life, the life, we are connected to, Kimmerer suggests that gratitude emerges, for there, there is enough. Now that is a hard thing to say, Sometimes when that is said, it is left there as if 
poverty, warfare, injustice, and the laundry list of unsustainable human practices goes away. There's enough, so it's all taken care of. And, and no, it, it, those things don't go away. We can't pretend they do. But this is where the ethic of obligation comes in. For the Ware and Jerry people, uh, that obligation was present in their art, without words, showing that each being and thing had a place and that place should be known and respected. For Kimmerer and the Potawatomi Nation, obligation was in respecting the leeks that she was unearthing, giving them room to repopulate, of holding off, of never taking the first plant she saw because it might be the last. It was slow. It wasn't instant gratification. But do, do I really need to preach about the dangers of instant gratification and consumerism? It impacts churches too. But you need not go far to see more examples. All the way to the south of us, the Mayan people repeat a phrase from generations past. Who cuts the tree as they please cuts short their own life. The Blackfoot people of the inland northwest tell a story of how medicine lodges were created to represent the earth, to remind us to dwell in the earth and tend to the earth. The whole world is medicine, and our obligation is to dwell in it and steward it. The stories and sayings and examples go on and on. I share all of this with you against the backdrop of three occasions. First, American Thanksgiving, a holiday of abundance, a holiday with a complex history rooted in colonization. But for most of us today, it's simply a time to spend with our families, uh, whatever family means for us, our chosen families, our biological families. And much of that was taken away this year because we have an obligation to care for one another by not getting each other sick. Immediately after, there's Black Friday. Though the images of people being trampled in stores were few and far between this year, it was still with us. And now today, the first Sunday of Advent in the Christian calendar, the darkest season of the year for our Christian siblings. Now, I can't help but notice, but what an arc these three occasions present. We go from gratitude to gluttony to darkness. It's kind of a, a, a holy trinity of days that warn us about taking more than we need, of balancing gratitude. And so I wonder, what can a sense of obligation, a perspective that is interconnected and intimately in relationship with all that is, have to teach us this time of year? It isn't just our Christian siblings that acknowledge the shorter days in the Northern Hemisphere, or worldwide even. Point to a religion or a culture, there it is, naming the shortening days. There's a few common themes. One, there's nothing we can do to stop the darkness. It's as if these holy days and customs give us an overhead view of the world, being consumed by the dark. Shadows and nightfall creeping in closer and closer and closer. And if that gives you chills, it shouldn't. This is not an evil darkness. It's a darkness that embraces and calls us to reflect on what we have, what is enough, and to wait, to be patient. It's an opportunity to live out that part of the honorable harvest that calls us to sustain one another and the earth through the long nights. The Zuni Pueblo would dance uh, during the winter solstice, not just for themselves um, and not just on the solstice, but all throughout the winter. And they would dance for the whole earth, dancing for the season of planting that was yet to come. 
The Blackfoot tribe saw the darkness as a time to celebrate, uh, to also dance, to play games. The earth was dormant, and this was a time to cease from hard labor, to find joy with all creation. Again, the examples go on and on and reach far and wide. But what this tells me is that what Kimmerer shared about the honorable harvest is not just about food. It's a good place to start, to form deeper connections with what you consume to sustain your life. But that the honorable harvest is a call to renewing relationship with everything. And so as we enter into a season where we wrestle with the rush and the bustle, as Christians light candles for peace, hope, joy, and love in Advent, as the Blackfoot tribe dances and rejoices, we are called to renew, to connect, and to dwell, to learn from the wisdom of the honorable harvest. And so begins the season. Hear now the words of the honorable harvest. Ask permission of the ones whose lives you seek. Abide by the answer. Never take the first, never take the last. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Take only what you need and leave some for others. Use everything that you take. Take only that which is given to you. Share it as the earth has shared with you and be grateful. Reciprocate the gift. Sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. Blessed be. Amen.